0: This morning we continue our series going through the Gospel of Luke. So today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, the verses 26 to 38, which you'll be able to find on page 1178 of your pew Bible. 1177 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 1, the verses 26 to 38. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So far, the word of God. This morning, we'll be focusing on this passage through verse 37, with the words, For with God, nothing will be impossible. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, many of you have heard the words, Nothing will be impossible with God. Many of you have seen them. Maybe it's on on the bottom of a motivational poster, where you see somebody standing on top of a cliff that he's just scaled as a climber with his arms stretched out and big words underneath, nothing will be impossible with God. It's used to spur on Christian athletes who are facing overwhelming odds at the Olympics. It's used by faith healers around the world. Norman Vincent Peale, the author of the book The Power of Positive Thinking, wrote, a positive mental attitude is a belief that things are going to turn out well and that you can overcome any kind of trouble or difficulty. This is a mindset that's become very popular in our day and age. In fact, this philosophy has filled every aspect of life. As proof of this, how familiar is this phrase to you? When life gives you a lemon, make lemonade. That's the philosophy of positive thinking. It's a phrase that's an older phrase. It was used in 1915 in an obituary, but it was popularized, picked up, and spread throughout the world by men like Dale Carnegie and this Norman Vincent Peale as the catchphrase for their philosophical model of the world, the power of positive thinking. It's a phrase that spread so quickly that now it's become pretty much become a part of the English language many christians today adjust that philosophy a little bit in order to keep this phrase nothing is impossible with god in mind they say a positive mental attitude is a belief that things are going to turn out well and that with you and that you with help from god can overcome any kind of difficulty Overall, it's used to symbolize someone as being victorious in the face of overwhelming odds because they choose to make the best of whatever situation that's sent their way. Whatever hurdle that they face, they'll overcome it. Whether it's going for gold at the Olympics, whether it's to become better at your particular sport, to conquer personal obstacles, because... God makes all things possible and that He can make life better for you. Now, while God can indeed do all that if He wishes, is this the understanding of this phrase that we ought to have? What's the chief purpose of man in this world? Is it to be happy? We know that people who spend their lives pursuing happiness often find that it eludes their grasp. Is it to have purpose? Certainly people who dedicate their lives to various causes are happier than just those who pursue happiness. Studies have been done on that. But they're still missing something. The Bible teaches us what we're missing. The Bible teaches us that our chief purpose In this world, in fact, the chief purpose of all creation is to glorify God. And it is through glorifying God, even in the hard times, even in the most difficult and trying times of life, that we can find true fulfillment and satisfaction. If God chooses to further his glory by healing us or letting us win medals, so be it. But if he chooses to further his glory by giving us strength to continue through trials instead and to extend our trials and not to achieve our goals in the way we wanted, but still give glory to him through that, so be it. But in all of that, we're called to be content. We're called to find our satisfaction not in overcoming the hurdles but in looking to and glorifying God through those hurdles. As John Piper once wrote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So it's with that perspective on the overcoming of impossibilities in mind that we'll be looking at our passage today, the impossible made possible to the glory of God. And we'll be looking at three seeming impossibilities that are dealt with in this passage. First, that a virgin will be with child. Second, that the child will be the son of God. And third, a girl is given the grace to see it through. Now, as we come to the opening words of our passage today, we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Some of you kids, when you were looking at this, you might have thought, The sixth month, sixth month of what? Well, half a year has passed in Luke's timing of his gospel since the last event the one that we talked about last Sunday. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and he said that he would have a son. As proof of this, he was struck dumb until his son would be born. He went home to his wife Elizabeth and sure enough, as the angel had prophesied, she conceived and then she hid herself away. For six months, Time has been passing by as normal, except for the fact that you have this woman who was barren, who is now expecting a son. She's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. That's the sixth month that's being referred to here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, how old do you think that Mary would have been when Gabriel appeared to her and told this message? In today's world, we often see people who are engaged, which is kind of like being betrothed, but not quite, at the age of 25 to 30. In Canada today, the average age to get married is 31 for men and 28 for women. 50 years ago, it was a little bit younger than that, 24 for men and 22 for women. Many of us here today know high school sweethearts who were married straight after high school, occasionally being 18 or 19 when they got married. So when we come to this passage, we take a moment to step back and think, all right, how old is this woman? What kind of picture should we have of this woman who is here being addressed by the angel Gabriel? Now, according to some apocryphal writings, these are old writings, which are not quite old enough for us to recognize that they know for sure, but they probably have a pretty good idea. Mary was between 12 and 14 years old. surprising isn't it and these writings might not even be far off from the truth the usual age for marriage in the ancient world under Jewish law was 13 for boys and 12 for girls Mary was probably pretty young while that might seem strange to us it's important Think about this, not in light of judging another culture by the rules of our own, but rather to understand it within the context of its time. You find a bit of a picture into the ancient Jewish world through the movie, for example, Fiddler on the Roof. This is a movie of the lives of people in a Jewish community of Anatevka. There you find the line, At three I started Hebrew school, at ten I learned a trade. I hear they picked a bride for me. I hope she's pretty. Different contexts have different experiences through life. In the ancient Near East, you'd have lifespans that were shorter. According to one source, the average lifespan in the ancient Near East was about 35 to 40 years old. Now, of course, you had outliers like the Apostle John, who was on the island of Patmos, who died on the island of Patmos, He was much, much older than that. But because life was shorter, things moved more quickly. Life started much earlier for young people then, and they had to grow up fast. When they were able to start a family, they were expected to start a family. You became an adult much earlier. This whole idea of a stage of adolescence is actually something that has been invented within the last hundred years in our society. It's something that never existed before. This also means that it's no surprise that when Mary was betrothed, it says, I know no man. Now that, of course, doesn't mean that she didn't know a man. She was betrothed to a man. But it means that she was still a virgin. And it's no surprise. Although in the world today, they would say that's something that's absolutely shocking. She's never slept with a man, and now there's no other explanation for what's going to come to pass. And it's in this context, in the context of this young woman who is being addressed, that this message comes Now, there's a great difference in the way that the message is proclaimed to Mary as opposed to it having been proclaimed to Zechariah not too long ago, six months ago. The birth of John, the herald of the Messiah, is announced in a much more magnificent way. It's announced at the hour of prayer as the faithful gather together in front of the temple. Among other things, they're praying for the deliverance of Israel. It's meant to capture the eyes and the hearts of the people. Even John's birth itself as the forerunner of the Messiah is meant to prepare people's hearts to receive this coming Messiah. The announcement of the Messiah himself, on the other hand, is one of quietness. It's to a young girl in an obscure town in the region of Galilee. There's a betrothal that acts as a veil for the pregnancy to come, shrouding it from view of the public eye. A veil so that he who is called the son of Joseph might for a time be recognized as the son of Joseph, but might eventually become to known as the son of God. It pleased God to keep his son concealed in this way. He wanted, to make the, he wanted the world to be aware that the Messiah was coming. But who the Messiah was, when he would make his appearance, that was something that would eventually be only revealed to those who were on the edge of society. A virgin, later a handful of shepherds, and then some Gentiles from a foreign land. There were witnesses who could bear testimony, yes, but even in all of that, God kept his son concealed. That being said, there's still much that points to the special nature of the announcement of this coming birth. There's still much that points to how much greater this child will be than that forerunner who was announced six months prior to this. First, we can see the difference in the way that Mary was addressed. An angel appears to her and says, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, some people make the mistake and think that this means that Mary was highly favored due to something she herself had done. That she was a particularly faithful woman and so had the Lord visit his favor on her. And so they elevate her to a level that's above average humanity. But that's not the point of this address. Instead, the phrases that are used here point to someone who receives favor. It's the same word that you'll find in the Greek in Ephesians 1 verse 6 where it talks about the undeserved favor that we receive as believers through Jesus Christ. Unmerited grace has been poured out on her. Not due to anything that she's done. She still received favor and blessing from God. And so the angel calls her to rejoice. What a great announcement this is. Much greater than that which was made to the father of the forerunner, to Zechariah. But it also causes Mary some alarm. She's troubled at what the angel says and tries to puzzle out what exactly is meant by that. The fact that she's troubled is no surprise. What an astonishing and incredible description this is. But note what's missing. She's not disturbed by the fact the angel has appeared to her, like Zechariah was. She's more shocked by the way he addressed her than anything else. What could this mean? The angel repeats his message, but adds a word of comfort for her. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. More literally translated, the words here read, Do not be afraid, Mary, but you have found grace with God. Again, we find a Hebrew idiom here that refers not to earned favor, but freely offered from the hand of God. And he emphasizes using her name in particular to point out to her and encourage her that, no, this isn't a mistake. You have found favor. And grace with God. What's the result of this grace? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. In Matthew, we see the meaning of his name clarified in an angel's message to Joseph. His name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What a special thing! She's been chosen to bear the Messiah for the people of God. What an awe-inspiring event. But there's one catch. How can this be, she says, for I'm a virgin. This is not a doubt in God's ability like with Zechariah. She's not objecting to the fact that there will be a son or that he will rule. She doesn't question the eternity of his reign that's announced by the angel. She simply wants to know what's going to happen here the magnificence of God's design is brought forward. It's not simply that it's a unique message that points to how much greater this Messiah is than his forerunner. It's not just the fact that he will reign, but God displays the immensity of his power with the words confirming that the birth will be possible because the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This birth is marked out as something that's special, something that's a unique experience, something that's never happened in the history of the entire world, something that points to divine intervention, that points most clearly to divine intervention. With barrenness suddenly resulting in the birth of a baby, someone could still argue, maybe that's a fluke. But here, God has left his indelible mark on the entry of his son into the world by presenting the world with something that's so unique that it's never happened before and will never happen again the virgin birth. It's a declaration to the world of the specialness of this coming child, his life, his actions, and his message. God is not only a God who can bring life to the world through the womb. He's not only a God who can bring life to the barren womb. He's a God who can bring life where there was nothing. And if that's the case, the people are reminded, we are reminded, if that's the case, how much more can he do for his people? If there was any question to how much more God would and could do for his people, it's removed by the very words that we find accompanying the ones above. Not only will his child be conceived through a virgin and be the one through whom God works powerfully, but he will be the very son of God. He will be great, we read, bringing to mind the famous words of Hebrews 1, verse 5 to 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he bring again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And then in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, he continues, To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Jesus Christ, the firstborn and only true Son. Him being God's Son means nothing less than that He who had been the Son of God from eternity would be manifested in the flesh. First Timothy 3 verse 16. This is beautiful for us. Because as members of the body, we're promised that we are members of His body. As members of His body, we are sons of God. We are adopted children in the family of God through Him. God, entering the world, taking on the nature of man, has opened the way for all mankind who will turn to Him in faith to be adopted into His glory and His grace. The impossibility of it, the unthinkability of it, that God would condescend to come down to earth to show his mercy and grace to humanity steeped in sin causes us to say, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And yet he does. The very presence of his person in the world is evidence of that. It's proof that God is there, that he does care, and that he cares about you. Yes, he didn't just come into the world to be hailed as king. He didn't come into the world to be hailed as God. Certainly, there will be a time when every knee will bow, when every tongue confess. But it was not that day. That day, God would send his son into the world to reach out to mankind who was so dead in sin that they hadn't even the slightest ability to reach heaven's heights. Although they blindly stumbled around looking for something to fill that void. He would send his son, though it would cost him his precious blood, in order to redeem a people for himself. As we read in Philippians 2 verse 6 to 8, Christ being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God sent him, God sent his son into the world to suffer that for you. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would send his only son to make a wretch, his treasure, Brothers and sisters, you are that wretch, and I am that wretch. Christ's presence in the world as the Son of God came to pass solely for our sakes and for his glory. That he can make us his treasure and bring many sons and daughters to glory. Now, if you're here today considering putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, whether having spent many years gracing the hall of the church, or this is your first time here, know this. This reality can be yours. Even in your present situation and your present difficulties, you can find satisfaction and peace in glorifying God. Look to the one who so loved us that he gave his only Son, And know that whoever believes in this Son who has come into the world, God made incarnate, God in the flesh, will not perish, but will have eternal life. For we have a God who makes the impossible possible. And this brings us to our third impossibility. A girl is given the grace to see it through. There are many different reactions that are brought on by an unexpected pregnancy and to other, any other big unexpected change in life, for that matter, with regards to college or work or whatever else. For some people, there's a reaction of joy. It's something that they've been waiting a long time for. For others, it's terror. In the case of pregnancies, this can especially happen if it's a pregnancy that comes outside of marriage. And for others, it's just not what they expected at all. They'd envisioned life so differently, and they had plans. And this happens in many different situations. You had a direction in which you wanted to go. Even if you had a change that happened to you, like take Georgian college. The fact that that's currently on strike, or at every other college across Ontario. You had a whole future lined up. Well, now something has happened. Now, in the case of marriage, they're expecting And some people can feel unhappy about that. And they can feel horrible and selfish about the fact that they're unhappy when they know so many others would desperately desire to have children. And yet they grieve the loss of life as it once was. That happens with every major change in life. And it's not unexpected. Because the human reaction can be grief. Not grief at the particular thing that came to pass. But grief at the knowledge That life, the life as you had expected it, has now died. And there is something else that has taken its place. The death of a future that you had planned out for yourself. Now, you can probably imagine that some similar thoughts may have flashed through Mary's mind. She was betrothed to Joseph and she had plans to marry him. Would he still accept her after this? Would he believe her that it was a virgin birth? How could she raise a child who was literally the son of God, God in the flesh, perfection incarnate? Where do you go for directions on raising a child like that? More than that, though, what would people think of her? This was, not, this was nothing like she would have imagined when she was growing up. There's no certainty that she has a place to go or a direction to take. She has no other choice. Can she surrender it all to God? For most of us, we would think this is an impossible decision for a woman who's in her pre-teen or early teen years. We think it would be an impossible decision for ourselves to face. It's far too overwhelming a thought. How? How? Could she ever face this? When speaking of how she would bear a son as a virgin, the angel gives her assurance. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. First and foremost, of course, we read this As the way in which the Son of God comes into the world. There's no other possible way than by the direct intervention of God for a child to be born where there is no earthly father. But this is also encouragement to her in the situation that she faces. This spirit is the one who not only made it possible for Mary to give birth to a child as a virgin, but he's also the one who gave her the strength and the courage to accept her position and face the coming days with dignity and with strength. He is the one who made it possible for this young woman, who is likely no more than a girl to us, say, behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. For any major change in your life, whatever the case is, whether it be a pregnancy, whether it be what's happening at the colleges, whether it be a sudden promotion or demotion, whether it be any other thing that caused a major change. This can be a very trying time for you. You look with hesitation and trepidation to a future that's suddenly radically different from the one that you had always expected. This can be true in whatever situation that you face in any other difficulty or uncertainty in life. But you can have this confidence, brothers and sisters, that the same Spirit who gave Mary the strength to see it through is the same Spirit that has been poured out to all believers ever since the day of Pentecost. You're not facing this future alone. You're facing it with the confidence and the power of the One who holds all of history in His hand. It might be a tough haul. In fact, it probably will be a tough haul, whatever your change is, with many late or sleepless nights and much in the way of emotions that will boil over, but you're not alone. And you're never alone. For Mary, she was assured of this by the sign that Elizabeth, who was barren, was in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. For us, we can find assurance in the much greater impossibility that has been overcome. God himself, clothed in the flesh, came down to earth through the womb of a virgin. Christ the man and Christ our Lord suffered and died here on this earth. And now our human flesh has been resurrected and lifted up to heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. From there, we have him as a pledge that our difficulties are only a momentary trouble compared to the eternal weight of glory that is promised to us at His coming. And He grants us His Spirit as a counter-pledge. The seal on the document by whose power we seek the things that are above. By whose power, even in the tough times, we can stand with Him. By whose power, even when things are broken, we find the strength to glorify God through that. By whose power we can glorify God by being most satisfied in Him and the strength of His power even in our present situation. Because nothing is impossible with God. Amen.